0: Hi there, Paula Eamon here with a heart full of love for you and a heart's desire to encourage you to endure this short life with joy and hope, by the grace of God, for the glory of God. If you haven't already listened to Episode 1, let me encourage you to do that. You'll learn who makes up the cloud of witnesses, and more importantly, who they're witnessing about, Jesus. Episode 2 was about Corey Ten Boom, a precious Christian believer who put her life on the line to save Jews from the brutality of the Nazis, and who, more importantly, along with her deeply compassionate sister, risked her life to share the gospel in prisons and concentration camps. Now to Episode 3, A Living Sacrifice. The Motolone Indians of Columbia, South America, had been hounded by outlaws and colonizers for a long time. They wanted the Motolone land. They were willing to do whatever it would take to get it, too. After being threatened time and time again, the Motolone decided that they had to keep living life and defend their territory if necessary. But their main desire in all things was to tell people about Jesus, the one whose path they now walked. Babari Shora, "'Bobby, for short, had to go down river to sell some bananas. "'He took two other motolones with him. "'He was expected back by four o'clock the following day. "'The river was at its normal height. "'The canoe was in good condition, "'and there was no reason why he should be delayed. "'But four o'clock came, then five o'clock, "'and still no sign of Bobby. "'I began to be concerned. "'I hated to see him go at all. "'Now my mind was full of all the things "'that might have happened to him.' Six o'clock came. The sun went down. Only the river shone faintly in the dusk. Night noises began to rise out of the jungle. They were so ordinary a part of life that I usually hardly noticed them. But that night, each one seemed foreboding. At 6.30, Abakuriana, Asrida, George Kamiyokbara, and I got into a canoe to go down river to look for Bobby and his canoe. The others weren't eager to go. It isn't easy to travel at night on the river. There was no moon, and rocks could appear in the path of our boat with no warning at all. After going through the first rapids, the canoe was swamped with water. We bailed out and continued. On the next rapids, we scraped our propeller against a rock but managed to clear it and continue on our way. As we rounded a bend in the river, another canoe suddenly materialized out of the gloom. We nearly hit it. I threw the beam of my flashlight on it and saw Aniano Buitraigo, one of Umberto Abril's men, and some of his cohorts. I didn't call out to them, but kept my flashlight in their eyes so they couldn't recognize us. In a moment, the river had whisked us by them. But what were they doing on the river at night? A little farther down, we passed another canoe going upriver. It was filled with more outlaws, Our flashlight beam probed the shore as we looked for Bobby or his canoe. There was no sign of him. Two more canoes passed us going upriver, filled with men I didn't know. Then we drifted by one of the land settlers' homes. At least ten canoes were tied to the dock. The night seemed alive with threats. Then George whispered, Look, isn't that Bobby's canoe? He was pointing at the dock. I strained to see it, but couldn't tell. We floated on by. It couldn't have been Bobby's. He wouldn't stop at one of the settlers' homes, especially when Safadana, a small motolone home, was located only a few hundred yards farther downriver. We considered going back for a second look. No, I said. Let's go down to Safadana and ask Istoikana if he's seen Bobby. We stopped for the canoe on the bank near the communal home. There was no fire going inside, no sound. Then I heard a motolone voice. Bruchko? Yes? Istroikana came running down to the bank. I could barely see his face. Brutchko, they've killed Bobarishora. He's dead. I couldn't grasp what, we, what he had said. That's impossible, I replied. We're expecting him in Iquiak Harora. Has he passed by here? Istroikana grabbed my arm. Brutchko, listen to me. Bobby's dead. He's been murdered. Stunned, I fell onto my knees on the beach. Where are the two men who were with him? I don't know, he said. They were badly hurt. They've gone. I reached out and grabbed Aistoy Kana's knee, steadying myself. The night seemed covered with red and blue blotches, like wounds. What happened? I whispered. Bobby was with Saitaira and Aksa- Akasara. They were coming upriver, passing by Israel's farm. Israel was on the bank, motioning and calling them to come over. Bobby was late. He didn't want to stop, but since he'd known Israel for a long time, he thought it might be an emergency. "'Israel was up for treatment two or three times in the last few months,' I said hoarsely. "'He had a broken arm that I sewed up and set for him, and he got the drugs he needed from us.' "'Yes,' I said, "'So Bobby thought he was a friend. He took the canoe over to the bank. While he was leaning over, the motor to turn it off, Satyra looked up and saw a man standing behind a tree with a shotgun.' Satyra yelled to Bobby and Akasara, telling them to jump into the river. Bobby didn't hear because he was too close to the motor. Satyra jumped up on the bank and grabbed for the shotgun. As he wrestled with the man for the gun, the man reached for his machete. Satyra let go of the gun to protect himself, and the man used his machete to slit Satyra's arm open from the wrist to the elbow. Satyra tumbled into the river, and Akasara jumped out of the boat to protect himself. Bobby tried to get out of the boat, but a blast from the shotgun caught him in the groin. He fell into the river. Some of the pellets hit Akasara in the leg, but he and Satira swam to the other side of the river. They looked for Bobby, but all they could see was the red in the water. Then they saw his body floating. They also saw swarms of colonists on the other bank. All had guns. They had been waiting for Bobby. Akasara and Satyra were frightened and ran. They came here and told us. Oh, no, no. Oh no, I whispered. A motolone whistled in the distance. Since their language is tonal, the motolones don't always use words. The whistling said that two canoes were floating downstream. There was no sound of motors. I realized that whoever was in them was trying to be quiet. They must be enemies. I want to go downriver to get the military, I said, suddenly angry. George, you come with me. I got into the boat. As I pulled the cord to start the motor, I heard little zinging noises on the water. They were shotgun pellets, fired from too great a distance to do any damage. The motor started on the third try, and we quickly left the gunshots behind. It took several hours to reach the Rio de Oro military station. I woke up the commander of the armed forces. He came downstairs in his pajamas. I told him there had been a plot to kill Bavara Shora, and that he was reported to be dead. He listened to my story— "'staring in space with sleep-glazed eyes. "'Okay, I'll check into it,' he said, "'and opened the door for me to leave. "'I don't want you to check into it,' I said. "'I want some help now. "'I need somebody to protect the Motolones.' "'Sorry,' he said. "'I can't do anything tonight.' "'I went to the police. "'They wouldn't do anything either. "'I didn't think that they were unconcerned about the problem. "'They were afraid of being attacked themselves. "'I was angry and frustrated.' At four in the morning, I started back up river with George. Dawn was just beginning to break. A pearly gray light on the water got brighter as we went upstream. The foliage took on a lush green color. It all looked so innocent. These were the trees in the river that I loved. This was home. Bobby couldn't be dead. I refused to believe it. I kept thinking about the time a few months before when our boat had been pulled up into the whirlpool. I had thought Bobby was dead then. But he had survived, miraculously. He might even now be in the jungle, waiting for help, staying out of the outlaw's sight. When we reached Safadana, the sun was shining. It didn't seem possible that we could have been shot at there, but Aesthoikana told us that the settlers and outlaws had been coming by all night, shooting into Motoloni homes near the river, and shouting that the Motolones had to leave, that the land no longer belonged to them. "'Have you looked for Bobby?' I asked." "'We've looked, but we haven't found a trace. "'We've got to look,' I said. "'He may need our help. "'He may be wounded in the jungle.' "'Eistoy looked down at his feet "'as though a little embarrassed. "'We spent the whole day in the jungle hunting for Bobby. "'The others wanted to quit, but I wouldn't let them. "'I had not slept in a day and a half "'and was at the end of my strength. "'Sometimes my voice would fade "'and there would be nothing but the sound of the birds "'singing faintly in the trees. "'There was never an answer from Bobby.' At five o'clock, we quit. It would be dark by the time our canoe reached Safadana. We didn't talk. We were too tired, too sick. When we reached the point where the Cano Tomas River comes into the Rio de Oro, I saw something floating in the river. It looked like a log. We went over to investigate. It was Bobby, face down. All hope drained out of my body. I felt empty, like a shell. I had convinced myself that this would be like the time we had nearly drowned. Bobby would be alive. We would be reunited. The river was shallow. I got out of the canoe and turned Bobby over. His face, stark white, was crinkly from being in the water. I closed his eyes with my finger. He had died at once. The shotgun blast had ripped open the lower half of his body. God! I cried. Oh, God, why? He had been the leader of his people, the first to know Christ, the first to read and to build schools, the first to take a stand against the thieves of civilization. George handed me a blanket. I wrapped it around Bobby's body, then helped lift him into our canoe. The next day we took his body to Iquiacarora. My mind wouldn't let me rest. I had cried that night until no more tears could come. Still my thoughts went in circles. Why all this death, Lord? I kept asking. The river was death. The jungle was death. Death flowed down the valleys. Always it touched someone I loved. Gloria. Bobby. And woven through my thoughts were the chilling words of Umberto. For this cross I'll kill you. The river was low, and we had to spend a lot of time getting through the shallow area. At one such place I heard the zip-zip of bullets hitting the water. They came from two canoes across the river. Suddenly, a shot split the side of our canoe— We struggled frantically to get past the outlaws, but they were gaining on us. I felt a burning shock in my leg. A bullet had hit me. We finally got the canoe loose. As we started into the deeper water, another bullet creased my chest. It actually felt good. I wanted to be hurt. I wanted pain. I wanted death. But I received only surface wounds. We stopped the flow of blood. The pellets would have to be taken out later. After many more hours of riding slowly upstream, we rounded the bend in the river that led to Carora. Several hundred motolones were on the bank, armed. When they recognized us, they waited quietly until we disembarked. The news of Bobby's death had spread and people had come from miles around. They crowded around the boat. I saw Atakadara, Bobby's wife, standing above us on a little knoll. She was watching me, waiting. I looked at her bowing my head to confirm that bobby was dead she turned and walked away one of her little girls clinging to her leg she had bobby's youngest son in her arms we got my hammock from the home and tied it to a 12-foot pole lifting bobby's bobby out of the boat we put it in a hammock and then covered it with my blanket because he was my packed brother "'Then we carried the hammock across the river and downstream "'and hung it far up in the highest branches "'so the vultures could eat Bobby's body. "'Returning, I found Atacadara standing by herself "'on the edge of the jungle. "'Her eyes were dark and empty, "'as they had been when her daughter had died. "'She looked up at me, and I broke into tears. "'She grabbed my shoulder. "'No, no,' she said. "'I held her for a little while, then let her go.' All day I sat outside the home and watched the vultures swoop out of the sky. They began as high, dark specks, circling closer with their huge, unflapping wings. They landed in the trees with short, stuttering flaps. I remembered when I had thought the ceremony cold and cruel, had thought sticking someone in a box and putting him in a hole was better than tying him high in a tree to be carried off into the sky. I knew now what it meant. It meant that Bobby was free to go beyond the horizon. I only wished I could go with them. Some Otolones tried to talk to me as I squatted outside the home, tried to cheer me, but I sat like a stone. That night I could stand it no longer. I went out into the jungle to the trees that held Bobby's hammock. There I would lie down to sleep under the hammock that held Bobby's body to say a final goodbye. But when I went, the whole home followed me. There were about two hundred people. We crossed the river together. It was dark under the hammock. There was no moon. Let's all hold hands in a circle that has no beginning and no ending, and let's talk to God, I said. It wasn't according to Motolone culture, but it seemed the right thing to do. Odo, Bobby's adopted son, was the first to pray. He was only 14, but God gave him the most beautiful, prophetic prayer I had ever heard. god he said loudly looking up at the silhouette of bobby's hammock god this is black it's dark i can't see we're lost he was quiet for a moment then continued in a new quieter voice god there is a tree a tall tree with its roots going very deeply into the ground it's us lord it's the motolone people we've lived in this land all our lives generation after generation, and our roots are very deep, and we stand tall. We tried to follow God, but we lost him while we were trying to follow. We tried to follow our own paths, and they never took us to the place they were supposed to. They only ended at another home or at a river. They never took us beyond the horizon where we would find you. Then Babari Shora found your path in Jesus Christ, and he walked it and showed us how to walk it. We were glad. "'But God, where has it taken him? "'Why did that path lead to this place? "'God, it can't be!' "'He stopped. "'There was absolute silence. "'The tree is beautiful,' he said. "'It is beautiful. "'It is covered with large, perfect blossoms "'that have opened and shine in the sun. "'Each of us is a flower. "'But there is one flower bigger and more beautiful "'than all the rest.' It made the most perfect fruit, that is Bobari Shora. He gave us agriculture and our stomachs were filled. We were dying of sickness and he brought us healing from Jesus Christ through medicine. He showed us the path to walk with Jesus Christ so that we have reasons for life, for living. We were all excited by this new life. But, O Lord, it's so black. A wind has blown and the fruit, the most perfect fruit, has dried and withered and fallen to the ground. Its seeds have been kicked into the dark, dark ground. It is died. Babarishora has died and left us. God, don't let the seed be wasted. Make our lives fertile soil so that his seed may grow in us. Make his death into a great tree growing in our soil so that we can live as he did, to help each other and learn to love. Make this grow up in us because of his death. We ask this because we are all one this evening In a circle, holding hands, born into Jesus Christ, your only Son. From Odo's prayer, you have learned about what Bobby was like. He was someone who loved the people around him by constantly sacrificing himself for the purpose of the gospel. But would you be surprised if I told you that this is exactly the opposite of who he used to be? What changed him? Or should I say, who changed him? Well, Bobby encountered a tall, white, blonde-haired man before he was even considered a man himself. This encounter started a relationship that would last until Bobby was shot that faithful day. Bobby was a husband and father of several boys and girls, including his adopted son, Odo. He was short, heavyset, powerful, and agile. He was browner than the other Motolones and had flashing white teeth. He was the pack brother of the white man. So who was the white man? His name was Bruce Olson, the man the natives called Bruchko. I will use those names interchangeably. Bruchko was raised in a home in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in which someone was always fighting. He said one time that things seemed to go best when they didn't talk to each other. His father was incredibly legalistic and harsh. This made itself most clear after Bruchko gave his life to Christ. Bruce had to walk himself to every church service, even in the brutal Minnesota winters. One snowy winter night after coming home from church later in the evening, he discovered that his father had locked him out of the house. Amidst this hostility, the slender, boyish-faced, book-loving teen, who was shy, self-effacing, and untrained, surrendered his life to the world of foreign missions after being spurred on by the Holy Spirit. Where did Brechko believe the Lord was leading him? South America. But before his decision had been made, he really wrestled with God about being a missionary because of his desire to earn his PhD in philology, which is the branch of knowledge that deals with the structure, historical development, and relationships of language or languages. He had for a long time been interested in languages, Latin being one of them. Slowly, his dream of being a professor dissolved into, as he stated, the ridiculous idea of going to other countries to talk to savages about God. And as he read the Bible, God gave him something he'd never bargained for, compassion. Getting to South America was, to say the least, not easy. He had no support from his family. He had no money. He was even denied by a mission board. Could it have been because he was too early in the faith and too young? Possibly. But his zeal for God, led by a deep dependence on the Holy Spirit's direction, produced in him a dogged determination to go anyway. He flew into Venezuela because a friend had given him the name of a missionary there. Bruce had at one point written that missionary and received back from him an enthusiastic letter stating that he'd be sure to meet him at the airport to show him around Caracas. He never showed up so this 19-year-old teen was by himself at the Caracas airport until 1 a.m. trying to figure out what to do. A man came by who struck up a conversation with Bruce. Bruce didn't know Spanish yet, so they both spoke in Latin. One thing led to another, and Bruce ended up staying with a Venezuelan family. This family was very welcoming, but eventually Bruce grew very restless. He was asked if he really wanted to work with the Indians. Bruce confirmed that he did. He was then introduced to an American doctor named Dr. Christian, who was working on the Orinoco River as one who was employed by the government's Indian Commission. The trip they took together is what started it all. Bruce stayed with a kind and hospitable Mavaca tribe for three weeks while Dr. Christian medically treated Indians farther up the yellow and muddy Orinoco River. Bruce was hoping to meet the missionaries that he had communicated with while he was back in the States. He did meet them, but they were incredibly unkind to him. He learned from the Mavaca that the missionaries pressured their Mavaca converts to behave and worship like Americans. Bruce observed the impact it had on the other Mavaca and wondered if it was for the best. A few weeks later, when he was back in town, he ran into the missionary kids, well, they were teens his age. Through a series of events, he ended up being snubbed all over again by the missionaries. It crushed him because he was lonely and poor. He cried out to God, asking him for help. He was then, at the invite of some kids he met in the town center, taken to the local school so that he could speak English and teach them about America. This led him to Raphael, a university student who invited Bruce to stay with his family. This led him to book a ticket for Caracas, even though he had no money. He wanted to go to Caracas because Dr. Christian had told him about an American-Venezuelan cultural exchange program that he might be able to get involved in. He could stay at the boarding house. Right before going to the airport, he received a letter from his home church in Minnesota. The letter contained just enough money for him to fly to Caracas. Caracas was in a volatile state because there were violent protests against the government being led in the streets. It was traumatizing to Bruce. He ended up sick and feverish. The boarding house students took care of him, one named Lucio especially. They struck up a friendship. Lucio was part of the Socialist Party who had many feelings against America. So, at times, the debates between Bruce and Lucio became incredibly heated, so much so that at one point, while they were at the beach swimming, Lucio tried to drown Bruce. Bruce was able to get away. They walked home together silently. Bruce was sad. Over time, Bruce observed Americans of all sorts coming into Venezuela and behaving badly in different ways. He was ashamed of them. He began to sympathize with the socialist students because they truly seemed to care about their country. Lucio's coalition won the student election, but things began to go south for him. Bruce shared with him that he understood how it felt because of how his dad had treated him and because of how he was treated when he decided to go on the mission field. He shared the gospel with Lucio. Three days later, Lucio was saved. He said, I'll accept Jesus. I want him to run my life. Still plagued with loneliness, he was approached by a co-worker about the Motolone tribe who were known to kill intruders with arrows. The Motolone lived on the border of Venezuela and Colombia. Bruce immediately felt like they were who God wanted him to reach, but he was frightened and kept trying to talk himself out of it. One day, while sitting in the Ministry of Health, a newspaper article caught his attention. It revealed that an epidemic of measles had killed more than 20 motolone. They were left deserted in one of their communal homes. Spurred on by compassion and his newfound knowledge of tropical medicine, he was gripped by the need to go help them. After a grueling hike alone through the jungle, Bruce reached a village, starving. All of the villagers came out to greet him. Since he didn't understand them, and vice versa, he pulled out his wooden flute and played for them. One of them pulled out his flute and copied Bruce's melody, note for note. He then struck up a conversation of sorts with an elderly villager, in which the villager would say a phrase, and then Bruce would repeat it. This went on for two hours. Out of nowhere, he was struck in the back and knocked to the ground. He was then whipped mercilessly. After being thrown into a grass hut, he was shot at with arrows. Because they were being shot at through the hut, the arrows only left bruises and blood blisters. But after a momentary pause, the chief and his men took direct aim and shot the arrows directly into him. Shocked and in a daze, Bruce got his mule and took off into the jungle. Bruce later found out that the reason the chief was so hostile towards him was because white settlers had killed two of the villagers' young boys that very day. When Bruce looked back towards the village, his old man friend came out with the sick child in his arms. Bruce remembered that he had some antibiotics. He came back and administered them to all of the children who were sick. It really helped. The chief realized that Bruce was there to help. He allowed Bruce to stay. Four months later, Bruce left the Yuko tribe because he had been passing blood for two months. Even though he had no rapport with them, he had been able to share the gospel with them. While on his way out, his mule bucked him off. It hurt his right shoulder tremendously. He had to go back to the Yukos for help. They just made fun of him. Once he was situated, he left again. This time, his mule kicked him in the face. Blood splattered everywhere. He had no choice but to return yet again. He was reminded of the rejection of his father in the mission board, but he thanked the Lord for not rejecting him. Surprisingly, the chief came out to meet him and to help him. From then on, his relationship with the Yukos was wonderful. He was able to learn much of their language. At one point they told him about who they called the people of Oil. He learned that this was the Motolone tribe. He also learned that the Motolones were at war with the Yukos and that the Motolones would shoot any approaching outsiders with arrows he desperately wanted to reach the Motolones. So after living with the Yukos for a time, he traveled to different Yuko villages to get closer and closer to the Motolones. He was eventually able to persuade a younger Yuko, who was terrified of the Motolones, to guide him through the jungle to get as close to the Motolones as possible. On the seventh day, the young Yuko and the other guides became stone still and raced away. Bruce was left by himself. He was shot in the thigh with an arrow. In excruciating pain, he passed out. When he came to and looked up, he saw nine men encircling him. One came, grabbed the arrow that was still in his thigh, and yanked it out. Pain flooded Bruce. He was then forced to get up and march to the village. Bloodied and already showing grotesque signs of infection, Bruce was forced into one of the communal homes. He was fed hot dog-sized grubs that caused him to vomit and gave him diarrhea growing weaker and weaker from infection and with glands that swelled so much that he couldn't put his arms down, not to mention being in utter terror, he escaped into the jungle. His time in the jungle was devastatingly hard. He fell down constantly. He eventually followed the riverbed. At one point, he was able to pull himself in between two large rocks to prop himself up. Out of nowhere, an entire stalk of bananas floated down the river. Plagued again by doubts regarding what God was doing, he remembered the verse, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. He thought, God has given me a table in the middle of the jungle, a table of ripe bananas. Would he forget me now? He went on to say that somewhere out there, looking at the miles of unbroken trees, there must be people who can help me. God showed me the banana stalk when I needed it. He can surely take me to those people. Then he said, I won't say that I had complete confidence that God would do that, but I did pull my aching, sick body off the log and start walking again. Bruce trotted down the hill to a familiar sound and realized that it was two men cutting at the base of a huge tree. As he shouted at them, he lost his balance and fell into the dirt. Those men took Bruce to a house where he was able to heal. Bruce eventually made it back into the jungle, but took a less forcible method of reaching the Motolones. He set up camp and lived there, waiting for the Motolones to approach him. He left gifts in different places to show them that he had no ill intentions toward them. After over a month, they accepted him and let him in. The days were long, monotonous, and lonely. He began dreading the bland food. Every time he ate grubs, he threw up. His fleas became worse, and he had a rash from being so dirty all the time. Also, the language barrier became so obvious and seemingly impossible. The filthiness of the excrement piles disgusted him, as did the lewd behavior of an old woman towards him. He then remembered an old gospel song that said, If you can't bear the cross, then you can't wear the crown. He realized that he didn't want the cross. He wanted the crown with all its jewels, without ever carrying the cross. After looking again at the old woman, he wasn't even sure he wanted the crown. But day after day, turned in year after year, he endeared himself to the people He developed a relationship with Babari Shora that he compared to the relationship of David and Jonathan. He helped the Motolones find God's path after they revealed to him that their ancestors had walked away from him. They gave their lives to Jesus. They went from being people who had no compassion, care, or concern for each other to a people group who established health stations, schools, and evangelistic outreaches. Their impact on the country of Colombia and indigenous tribes was significant, to say the least. All of this was because Bruce, Brechko, would not let the rejection, the pain, the ridicule, the exhaustion, the starvation, the loneliness, and the insurmountable odds stopped him. He pressed on for the sake of the gospel, for the hearts and minds of the unreached. All that, but not mostly. The one who directed all of this every second of every day was the Holy Spirit, He was the one who first loved the Yukos, the Motolones, and countless other South Americans, civilized and uncivilized. He saw the unseen, the unreached, the tribal people, and he still does. He first loved Bruce, and he loves you. Do you know him? Has he led you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If he has, who is he leading you to share the gospel with? The opening excerpts were read from the book Brechko, written by Brechko himself. It is an incredible read and I highly recommend it to you. As a mom, my hope and prayer is that you share these stories with your children. Of course, if you are not a parent, share them with someone you know it would bless. If you are like me, my heart is constantly tempted to gaze at those who want nothing to do with God. Let's not let it tempt us to the point of giving in though. Let's keep our hearts inspired by others to press on for the cause of Christ.